Father God, Lord, we thank you this morning for your loving kindness upon us, uh, that which we do not deserve, and yet you graciously give. Uh, we pray, Lord, uh, as we consider the words of Genesis chapter 49 this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged with what has already happened and what will uh, still remaining to be uh, fully completed. Uh, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be warmed with the words and the promises of the text, the way that all of church's uh, history has viewed this text. I pray, Lord, that we would take courage in it, uh, that we may then live rightly because of it. I uh, pray now you help us understand. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I said last week that the aim of this Advent series is to help us be amazed by the miracle of Christmas by helping us see what the New Testament writers saw in the Old Testament, thereby causing our hearts be more captivated with Christ. Uh, we often don't read the Old Testament like the writers of the New Testament did, and that, be, that becomes for us a, a disconnect in how we should approach the Old Testament scriptures. We think that either the New Testament writers were given some leeway because of the Holy Spirit, which uh, uh, led and directed them to write in the New Testament, that gave them a special way of reading the Old Testament, which perhaps we don't have access to. Uh, or we, on the other hand, more blatantly just simply disregard the Old Testament. And yet it is the very Old Testament which Jesus um, uh, went to the scholars and the scribes of his days and, and rebuked them for not understanding that it was those scriptures that spoke about him. And so likewise, Jesus could perhaps rebuke us for our lack of understanding of the Old Testament scriptures of actually speaking about him. And so last week we walked through Genesis chapters uh, 1 through 4. Um, and, and you'll recall uh, what we did is we simply looked at the overarching storyline of the first four chapters and how that is actually the overarching storyline of the rest of the scriptures. Uh, open up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, this is, we spent a large amount of time here last week, Genesis chapter 1, uh, 27. It should be on like the first or second page of your scriptures. And here it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male. And female, he created them. And I said last week that this is placed here in the story as the pinnacle of all of God's creation. That, that, that mankind holds a special place in God's created order over animals, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the, of the air, and over every creeping thing on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. And this becomes important later on in the scriptures. I'll flip over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. We looked at this text as well last week. It says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here we then looked at this text and how Paul would look at this text and the verse right after it and say, uh, This is actually not just about marriage. It's not just about a man and a woman coming together, creating one flesh, but rather it's a picture of Christ's love for the church. And it became the great analogy of Christ uh, and his bride, the church. And then look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this is all recap. If you were here last week, you're probably like, come on, pastor. It's okay. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. One of the most well-known texts out of the book of Genesis says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, of course, being what theologians will call uh, the, the first promise, the first mention of the gospel, 
Uh, it is here that we see that, that God has promised in some way that future generation there will arise one man who will put to death the serpent. The book of Revelation will tell us is Satan himself. And then flip over to Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. It's kind of where we landed the plane last week. This is, a, this is Lamech is the son of Cain, and in this section of scriptures, he's actually boasting and uh, bragging about how he is worse than Cain. He says this, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. This creates a bit of a problem, as I said last week, because what happens is uh, after God gave that promise to Adam and Eve, kicked him out of the garden, it says then what? That, that, that Eve ha- had a son uh, and named him uh, Cain and Abel. They had two sons named Cain and Abel, and so uh, the Hebrew is structured in such a way there uh, after the birth of those sons that Eve is like, this is the one. God's given me the man. This is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, and then that becomes problematic later on because... Cain kills his brother, so it can't be the dead guy who's the savior of the world. And it can't be Cain, who's as evil as he is. And then not only that, but then Lamech's line then gets progressively worse. He, Lamech actually boasts about how, how more wicked, how more vile he is than Cain. And so we as the readers then are left with, okay, well, what now? This is why there at the end of Genesis chapter 4, uh, it talks about Moses writing this narrative says that, uh, that men and women began to call upon the name of the Lord after God had given Adam Seth. Now what you may have not noticed last week, and perhaps as I point your attention to this week, is that all of these texts that we just briefly looked at, Genesis 127, 223, 315, and 4:23 and 24, are all probably indented in your Bibles. Um, or, on your, or on your screen or on your Bible. But these are indentions for a reason. It's because underlying the text of the English is the Hebrew, and this Hebrew is poetry. So, for example, if you look at the Psalms, uh, chances are the, the translators have structured it in such a way that, that it looks like poetry to you. Now, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't rhyme at all. These are really bad poets. Hebrew poetry is a little different, but just, just trust me, this, this is poetry. So you might be thinking, ah, What's the point of that? Well, the point is this. Moses, as I said last week, Moses' primary point in all of this, and all the script, and all the Pentateuch, is to point you to the coming Savior. To point you to the coming Savior. And he uses these poetic scenes, if you will, these poetic sections, to keep reminding you of the progressing story that's happening in front of you. You see, the overarching story that is initiated in Genesis is this grand epic this human drama of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It's a helpful summary of the entire story of the Bible. You see, in the beginning, God made heaven and earth to be a glorious temple of his presence. Just as gods in the ancient world were understood to inhabit local temples, so the Lord of heaven and earth was understood to inhabit the whole created cosmos. The seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 cries, The whole earth is filled with his glory. The very structures of creation exhibit patterns of God's dominion and majesty. The moon and stars rule night and light. The animals and sea creatures rule the land and the sea. The birds rule the skies and humanity, wonder of wonders, rules over the whole created order. We were made to image God, to reflect his wise rule. 
his splendor, his order, his beauty into creation. Creation then exists, ultimately to tell the story of God. You see, God made the world to display God, namely to display his kingship, his wisdom, his majesty, his beauty in all things. Romans 11 and 36 would say, for all things are from him, through him, and to him. And yet, tragically, humans did not tell the story of God's character. In fact, they rebelled against him. They reflected their own purposes and intent rather than fulfilling their functions as image bearers of this creator one. In response, then, God exiles humans from his presence from the garden. So Genesis chapters 1 through 11 tell the story, downward spiral of humanity filled with violence and pride and pomp and arrogance. The human race lives as an exiled people. The subsequent violence and evil gives us an idea of what it looks like to live in exile from God. And strangely and shockingly, it looks a lot like our world today. Genesis 1-11 through shows us a world devoid of God's grace, which once filled the created world. And this is key, because if you read the Old Testament in such a way as thinking like this is all about Israel's story, has nothing really to do with the new, new age, the new uh, world which, which Christ was bringing. If you read this primarily as a story about Israel, you'll miss the point. Even if you read, this story is not even ultimately about you and I, or about all of humanity. Rather, the Bible is a story about the glory of God. The glory of God filling all things with God's glory. The loss of God's glory in creation and the restoration of God's create, glory within that created world. This is the human plight. It's the same plight Paul speaks of in Romans 3 when he says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And it is this God who stands in opposition to us, all of humanity, for violently wrecking his world and distorting his likeness, telling a lie about who he is and what he's like. And it is this God who begins a rescue mission you see, though he will not leave the guilty unpunished, he is also abounding in steadfast love and mercy, which is why I'm so thankful for Genesis chapter 12, because there, this mercy of God meets a man named Abraham. And God calls out Abraham to build a family so that he and his descendants will become a vehicle of blessing to the entire world. The nature of the blessing must be understood against the backdrop of the creation and the fall. Humanity tragically distorts God's face and refuses to image him into the world. And God responds in grace to this dilemma. So I want to turn for a moment to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. I'll give you the framework of the, of the sermon this morning. We're going to lay a foundation. We're going to look at the text. We're going to illuminate its meaning, and then we're going to land the plane. You see, the poetic themes of Genesis chapters 1 through 4 are meant to uh, be a pause and a reminder to summarize all that's come before it, right? So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, you get uh, the, the, that verse that we just looked at a minute ago, that uh, God created them in his image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This is poet, poetry in which uh, Moses is trying to get you to stop and think about everything you just read, right? Men and women being the pinnacle of creation. And you get the marriage of chapter 2. In chapter 3, you get a longer poetry scene, which is supposed to meant to uh, tell you everything that just happened in the fall of Adam and Eve eating of the tree of the 
a garden which they should not have. But after chapter 4, the, the poetry kind of stops for a while. And it's because it's in chapter 5 that we then get the outplaying of the drama taking place. You get a much larger section of narrative. But not only is the first four chapters structured this way in such a way that it's narrative and then poetry, and then a summary at the end, but the entire book of Genesis, as a matter of fact, the entire book of the Pentateuch is structured this way. So in chapter 49, we run right up against poetry here. So let's just read it. Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. Need more time? Say any more time? I want to make sure you see this. Verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall all the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And skip down to verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them with the, cur- with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Eph- Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan which Abraham brought, bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So first I want to lay a foundation here. What, what, what is happening? Because if we read this with our Western eyes, our American, uh, we'll, we'll be at a loss of what's actually happening. So as I was studying this text, one question immediately came to mind, which is uh, the, the text here is Jacob blessing his sons, right? If you, you probably, your Bible at the very top of ch- chapter 49 probably says that in big bold letters, Jacob's blessings to his sons, the blessing of Jacob's sons, something along those lines. And so the first question we should be asking is, what is this blessing? None of us do this anymore. Chances are your, your mother and father did not give you a blessing in this sense. And so what is a blessing? What is this blessing that Jacob is doing? As a matter of fact, Jacob's not the only one who does, does this. Jacob is blessed by his father. Uh, Abraham blesses 
uh, his son Isaac. All of this blessing. And, and if we're not careful, we'll just think, ah, yeah, they just wanted to say some good words to him. And like, God bless you. Go live a fruitful life. But there's something more being passed on in this blessing. You see, a blessing is the bestowing of privilege, right, responsibility, or favor upon some portion of the created world. You see, it was God who created the world and looked at everything he made. And what did he do? He blessed it. He blessed it. So it's this favor or responsibility, a right or a privilege. In relation to humanity, though, to be blessed is to be one of God's own people with all the benefit that brings. In other words, the blessing of God is his relational presence in our lives. You see, it's at this crucial point within the story of Genesis that it climaxes with a series of initial fulfillments of these blessings and promises, indicating that that Moses, as he's writing this, uh, the, the, the book, he hasn't forgotten the immense blessings of what's actually being carried through the story. You see, although some blessings uh, and these promises have been fulfilled along the way, the closing chapters of Genesis seem particularly designed to show that the blessing promises which were promised uh, starting in Genesis 3.15, moving to Abraham and then to all of Abraham's sons, some of those had been realized, but not all of them had been fully realized. And it's in chapter 49 that we begin to see this passing on and this continual belief that God will do what he said. The fulfilling of the Lord's sweeping blessings had been initiated. You see, he was giving Abraham seed, the land. In chapter 48, and we see it again in verse 50, or in chapter 50, they had multitudes of descendants already at this point in time, and yet these blessings were still far in the future. A few patches of land had been acquired by Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. But these were simply pledges against the coming complete realization of God's full blessing. Abraham's family had grown by dozens, but offsprings as number of the stars, which were promised to him, were still very far in the future. And most promising of all, the whole earth had begun to be blessed, and the effect of the curse to be mitigated through Abraham in the person of Joseph. But yet it was not fully complete. So this is a blessing. This is what he's doing. He's passing on to his son this continued promise that God has started in the garden is now being passed down to his, one of his sons. That's what this blessing is. How is the blessing framed for us? How, the, how does the poetry of all of chapter 49 begin and end? Because this becomes key in actually how we understand it. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. This days to come is an interesting phrase here. If you have the King James Version or the New King James, it says in the last days. NIV, days to come, ESV, and days to come. But, but really the heart of it is in the last days. In verse 1, we are told that Jacob was speaking about the things that will happen in the last days. The same expression occurs uh, in other poetry sections of the Pentateuch, which we'll look at in the coming weeks. It happens in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 24. It happens in the last words of Moses in Deuteronomy, chapter 31. On all three occasions, the subject matter introduced by the phrase, in the last days, is that of God's future deliverance of his chosen people. And at the center of this deliverance stands a king. 
That's what the framing, he begins with saying, this becomes important, how we're actually going to understand how the New Testament writers understood this passage is when they read that Jacob said to his son, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the last days. And then you get over to the New Testament like, hey, we in the last days, therefore how should we read this text? Everything begins to come on. But not only that, look at how he ends it in verse 28. Ends this poetry section. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. You see, Moses is going to great lengths to connect Jacob's words in the prophecy to the theme of the blessing. And this blessing has been a central concern of the book since chapter 1. It's a story that you and I are immediately involved in today, which is how do we get back to the blessing of God? And he does this by repeating the word bless or blessing three times in this short verse. By framing Jacob's words between verses 1 and 28, Moses is trying to get us to see that Jacob's words look to the future in the last days. This is going to happen, but it draws on the past of God's blessing of humankind. And it's within that context that we're actually supposed to understand and read Jacob's word in this chapter. Third point in laying the, laying the foundation here is understanding that the Christian religion is a progressive revelation. Everybody know what that means? Revel- so we have a revelatory faith, which means that we don't believe because we got here by ourselves. As a matter of fact, without the scriptures, we would have no basis for our faith. And so it's only because God decided to speak to us through the scriptures that we understand. And yet... It wasn't always that the, 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 the people of God knew all the things that God was going to do. So this is why Adam and Eve were so confused when they had their first two sons and then one kills the other and they're like, this isn't him. This isn't the one we've been waiting for. So we have this progressive revelation because all they have is the promise that one day there's coming a son who will defeat Satan and, and the, the serpent. Restore the blessing of God upon his created order so that one day we would walk with the Lord again. And there's these promises, right, that, that, that it progresses outward. This progressive revelation so that uh, what we understand now on this side of the cross is completely different than what Jacob understood when he was giving these blessings. This is progressive. It's, it's going to grow out of. So that's, that's the foundation. That's what we need to know that going into this text. But now let's, let's look at the text. We know what a blessing is. We know Moses' framing of this, this passage. Uh, and we know that there's a progressive revelation that's going to be at play here. So look at verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Reuben is the firstborn of uh, Jacob, and as was custom, he should be the one who gets the blessing. He should be the one who gets the birthright. And yet, Jacob says, you have excelled, but you will excel no longer. You have been preeminent, but you will be preeminent no longer. And Jacob gives a reasoning here in verse 4 about Reuben defiling his couch, which this is a reference to chapter 35 where Reuben goes in and sleeps with one of his father's concubines. This is important for us to understand because Reuben should have been the one 
He should have been the one by, who got the birthright and the blessing from his father by virtue that he is the oldest. And yet the author of the book of Chronicles gives us the explanation of what's actually happening here. First Chronicles 5, uh, verse 1, it says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest brother. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him. And so Reuben is passed on. That's what we're seeing here. That's the point of Jacob's word. He's being passed on the birthright that would go to Joseph and the blessing which would go to Judah. Look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined by their company, to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, for their wrath, for it is cruel. I would divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi here. Uh, these are the two sons who attacked the city of Shechem in Genesis chapter 34. And according to Jacob's word here, the result of their action was that these two tribes, Levi and Simeon, would not have their own portion in the inheritance of the land. The fulfillment of Jacob's words, that we can track these fulfillments through the rest of the scriptures, is the fact that the, the tribe of Simeon virtually disappears from all biblical narratives after this time, after the time of conquest. And in the fact that the, the tribe of Levi was uh, given the responsibility of priesthood, and hence, therefore, they could not have any inheritance in their portioning of the land. Look at verse 8. This is where we'll spend our time. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey of my son you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouches the lion, and is a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His dark eyes are his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. See, so far, what Jacob is doing is going through his, his, his sons in order of oldest to youngest, and having eliminated the older brothers as the rightful heirs of the blessing, Jacob foretells the future for the tribe of Judah that pictured him as the preeminent son. According to the book of Chronicles, Judah prevailed over his brothers and thus became heir to the throne. As the writer of Psalm 71 later puts it, the Lord rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. As both these later biblical texts suggest, the words of Jacob regarding Judah in Genesis 49 anticipated in many details the future rise of David to Israel's throne. So what we see in this passage, in verse 8 to 12, is the expectation of a coming king. Again, remember, that's the entire point of the whole book. So look at verse 8. You see, we see Judah will get praised says, Judah, your brothers will praise, shall praise you, and then it ends, your fathers shall bow down before you. Notice here in verse 8, Judah is described as a victorious warrior who returns home from battle and is greeted by the shouts of praise from his brothers. He carries on further, that your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, now, now note, what's happening in this moment is all of Jacob's sons are standing around him. He's going through one by one, giving them the blessing. And yet... Here, 
What he just said is that, that your father's sons, in other words, is saying all of your brothers standing around you will bow down to you. It's just massively important. Because if you know anything about the story of Genesis, then this sounds a whole lot like Joseph, doesn't it? Remember Joseph, he goes to his brothers after having a dream, and he says, hey, I had this dream. Y'all are going to bow down before me. What happened? His brothers became indignant. They're like, who does this fool think he is? That's what it says. Um, and, then, and then he goes to his father, and, says, and his, even his father says, will, will we bow down before you, your mother and I? And of course, if you know the story, this actually comes to pass in Genesis 42, verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Don't miss this. Because what just happened is with Jacob giving his blessing on Judah, he says, what just happened with Joseph, we all bowed down before him, that's going to happen to you, Judah. It's going to be a picture of in the last days, your brothers will bow down to you. So we see that Judah will get praised. We also see Judah will be a lion. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Judah is compared to a young lion returning from the kill with his prey. And this is the verse from which the rest of the scriptures will get this idea of a lion of the tribe of Judah. We see it pop up again in Numbers chapter 23 and 24. We see it in Isaiah chapter 31. Uh, if you've ever wondered, where do we get this term or this title for Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's from this promise right here. But not only that, we see Judah will be king over the nations. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. This verse tells us, it fills out the picture with the description of the young warrior as a king. He is the one who holds the scepter and the ruler's staff. Jacob is saying that it is Judah and the ones who come after Judah and from Judah who will have the permanent place of leadership. He's saying this is, this is where the, the, the Israel people began to have this concept of, of a great kingdom of which they will rule over all the nations. It's from this right here. Up until this point, the promise had just been uh, within a blessing of, of their own nation, and, and they would be a blessing to other nations, but there was never this idea that they themselves, that one of their own tribes would be leader over all the peoples. And we get it here. Look at the end of verse 49. It says, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, or the nations. This is a plural word here, showing that Jacob has in mind a kingship which would extend beyond the boundaries of the Israelites to include the other nations. Lastly, here within looking at the text, we see Judah's reign will be one of extravagance. Verse 11 and 12, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This is, this is a picture of a reign from the one from the tribe of Judah. And what the, Jacob is saying is that in that day, in the last days, there will be abundance for everyone. This idea of plenitude is expressed through the image of the donkey tethered to the choicest of vines. Like, think about it. If you have a donkey uh, and you tether that donkey to uh, a vine, it's going to, eat the vine, it's going to eat the grapes. And so what he's saying is that like in that day, in those last days, it's going to be the choicest wine is going to be so available, so everyday common uses, the best things that you'll just tie your donkey up to it and you'll just let it eat. 
It's a symbol of blessing and prosperity. Be so abundant. So what, let's, 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 looking at the text, let's illuminate the meaning here. What does this, what does this mean for us? Pat, help me understand. Put, put this together for me. So we got Judah as one who will receive praise. Judah who will be a lion. Judah who will be king over the nations. And Judah who will reign in extravagance. Does this sound like anyone that you and I know? Philippians 2 verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, Jacob didn't know his name. He just knew that there was coming. There's going to come one from your tribe, Judah, who will, uh, everyone will give them praise. His name is Jesus. Psalm 2 verse 8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The psalmist knew that there would come a day where God would give to this tribe, give to some person uh, the nations as their heritage. They didn't know his name, but we know his name as Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, in his vision, he says, I saw, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. You see, Daniel in his vision saw that there was coming one who is like the Son of Man. And he would be given a kingdom and glory and have dominion. He didn't know his name, but we know his name. Jesus. And then finally, John, the author of Revelation, puts it all together for us in chapter 5, verse 5. And he said, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This one, he's here. He's the one who's going to open the scrolls. He's the one who all glory is due. He's the one who will get the praise. He is the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king who will rule over all the nations. And he is the one who will rule in extravagance. Flip over very quickly to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John, uh, the book of John, he, he, he has seven miracles. If you've read it, if you've analyzed it, you'll know that he has seven miracles, seven signs uh, that he presents before his readers in order to get them to do one thing. And he says that what that one thing is at the end of his gospel. He says, all of these things were told to you so that you might believe. So we got to think for a minute. John has written a story and he said all of these things were, and then right before that he says many other things Jesus has done. We just didn't put them all in this book. So what that means is John has selected uh, a few stories, a few miracles, a few signs that Jesus has done in order that you and I might believe who Jesus Christ really is, the Lord of all the earth. So he has seven opportunities, seven moments, seven signs to which to present before us to get us to believe that this is the right one, that this is the Messiah. This isn't a fake Messiah. This is the real Messiah. So we get to the first miracle. John chapter 2. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. He said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now notice what John says here. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Put this in place. John has seven stories. He says there's plenty of other stories, plenty of other signs that Jesus did, but I'm going to pick seven of them so that at the end of reading this story, you can see that this is Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he begins this first one with this turning the water into wine at a wedding. And most of us are, if we're honest, we're like, I have no idea what that's about. Like, like okay, maybe that was his first miracle, but if it was, why did John include it? Why does John include a story about turning water into wine? Not only that, why did John include it? Like, why why did John include it for us? And what are we supposed to understand? What is our takeaway from this story supposed to be? Listen, the story that we're supposed to take away is that throughout the Old Testament, wine is seen as a symbol of blessing and prosperity. Wine is seen as uh, that which God gives to mankind and lavish grace and lavish love upon them. The psalmist says the wine makes the uh, man's heart glad. And we look at this and be like, well, we, 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 we know what we do. You know what we do as, as Protestant Christians. We say, well, it was probably grape juice, Pastor, not wine. Listen, it wasn't. It wasn't grape juice. Um, we, can go all, we can go all through that. But listen, here's the point of the story. It's not about whether it's Welch's grape juice or whether it was alcoholic wine. The, the point of the story is that the age is dawned. The new has come. You see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who was to reign in extravagance, is here. That's the point of the story. That's why John includes it in his first miracle. He's saying that the new has begun. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Which, by the way, he's the one who says it in Revelation chapter 5 is here. And we know it's extravagant because of the amount of wine that he actually makes. He makes somewhere between 600 to 900 bottles of wine. That's about how much, if you look back at uh, verse 6, the 20 to 30 gallons, that that translates to about 600 to 900 bottles of wine. He's saying the extravagance has begun. So now let me land the plane in the last three minutes. Go back to Genesis 49. You see, throughout, uh, from verse 12 down to verse 28, Jacob goes on to bless his other sons. And the imagery behind each is the imagery of peace and prosperity. The focus of Jacob's words has been the promise that when the one comes to whom the kingship truly belongs, there will again be the peace and the prosperity, the blessing that God had intended all people to have from back in the garden. And then the section ends and tells the the story of the death of Jacob. Look at verse 28. And all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Here Jacob wants to be buried in the land. 
What land? The land where all the central figures of the book of Genesis are buried. He lists them here. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah. He says, I want to I be buried there. You think, we read that and be like, that's weird, okay. Um, move on to the chapter 50. But if we move too fast, we, we've, we, we, we miss the point. The point of Jacob's request at this point in the story is to remind you and I of the promise of the land, the promise that Jacob's seed would live in peace in the land promised to Abraham and Isaac. As, as theologian John Selhammer says, it is to show that Jacob's faith in God's promises remained firm to the end. Jacob couldn't see how God would ultimately fulfill all of his promises, and yet he believed them so much that he said, bury me there. And it's fitting that at the end of chapter 49, verse 33, he says, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Friends, we should read the Old Testament like the New Testament authors did. We do not read it as those who are still waiting around, looking for a Messiah, wondering when will he show up. But we live as those who are now in the new creation. Those who see the Messiah know that his name is Jesus and know the work of Jesus and what Jesus has done on our behalf. We live as those who live in the already but not yet. Therefore, this changes everything because we go from expecting and longing and waiting from a king to simply receiving a king as such. Friends, we should see Christ as the ruler of our lives because he is. This is what the Old Testament, the whole Pentateuch, the whole book of Genesis, uh, all of the texts point to this one figure named Jesus. The question is, do we see it? Do we love it? Do we let it then change our lives on how we live day to day? This is more than just mere history, more mere narrative. This should have real impact. Because we should look at the life of Jacob and his sons, those who believe the promises, and then we should believe with them the promises still yet to be fulfilled, that God will one day put away all death from us. He will one day wipe away every tear from our eye, that one day there will be no more curse. Friends, do we long like Jacob longed? Do we have the faith in the promises that Jacob had? We should, because Christianity is a progressive revelation. We we know more now than than Jacob did. Therefore, we we should live different. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. But we're thankful for the word this morning. We're thankful for uh, the book of Genesis all the pointers back to you, back to Jesus Christ. Lord, let the heartbeat of our lives be the heartbeat that beats for you, that longs for Jesus, not to come in the first time, not as an unnamed Savior, but as a, as a Savior named Jesus Christ who uh, currently, right now, reigns in our hearts. I pray we would believe this. I pray we would see it all over the Old Testament so that we would know how to read it like the New Testament writers did. And when they read this passage, John wrote that this is the line of the tribe of Judah. May we see it. May we love Christmas more now. May we be able to celebrate it deeply, more deeply than before. Because we have a somewhat of a sense of what they were waiting for, what they were longing for, what they were praying for. And may we then be encouraged to walk it out in our own lives. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.